We arrived now to the Gospel of John in chapter 16. And as we take to this particular portion, we've come to the preceding conclusion in regards to the Lord's discourse he has with the disciples. And with verses 5, I want to make sure we are full aware that in this particular portion, especially from where we've come, but in this particular portion, uh, we'll be stopping at verse number 11. And with, with verses 12 to 15, Pastor Jesus will pick that up uh, after uh, this Sunday. And the reason why I start the verse 11, because I think it is proper to establish now and it's allowing us to put everything into focus from what the Messiah spoke from verses four, from chapter 14 and chapter 15 in the first part of chapter 16. Therefore, reading from the ESV version, so those who are aware of where I'm reading from, we will now be reading John 16, verses 5 through 11. It reads, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Shall I look to the Lord our God now in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this day, this Sabbath day, your holy day in which that it is a glory and honor to be here with faculties attached, sensory organs intact to give glory to your name. So in this, Lord, in obedience to your son, Lord, taking on the words that he's speaking to his disciples at that day, but to us now is a show that though his bodily presence is not here, he is continually with us and do so by the Spirit working in our hearts that gives the testimony that abides with us forever. And it was part of that plan laid before the foundation of the world in the covenant of redemption to show that indeed you care for your creation. And when you start a plan, you will seek it to its completion. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray then. Amen. So now as we enter into this, as I stated again, the conclusion of the conversation between the master and the disciples, we observe poignant statements, $10 word here, <laughs> from John 15, 18 to John 16, 1 through 4. And progressing through chapter 16, a striking moment is occurred now as we're looking at verse, and I want to bring your attention to verse number six, because the master states, because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It's keen and it's evident the master sensed the prevailing mood amongst his disciples. 
Now, in case you were wondering, again, I gave you that $10 word of pugnant, but it means invoking a sense of sadness or regret. And the context clues there, especially by verse number six. Now, to the higher critical scholar who might be looking at the text, they will question. They will say, I thought the Messiah was a prince of priests. And yet what he has said has caused sorrow. You see, the word sorrow is never usually expected, yet alone associated with the master. So therefore, statements he stated in chapter 14 seems to be contradictory. By chapter 14, in verse 1, he stated, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then in John 14, 27, he stated, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. In fact, in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, he stated, Come to me, all who labor and are he heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you see, all these examples is material, weaponry, that these individuals who oppose Christianity place on the sheep, and especially those embracing the higher critical thought process. Such arguments are in their arsenal. But <laughs> to them, I say, au contraire, mon frère. You see, as the Messiah is showing here, especially telling the truth to his disciples, the disciples were showing and displaying the emphasis of their attachment to Christ's physical presence. But furthermore, by the Messiah's statement, he shows they further misunderstood the greater purpose behind his departure. I mean, recall in chapter 14 again, by verse 28, he states, You heard I said to you, I go away and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Therefore, by verse 5 and 6 here in chapter 16 of John, he admonishes them. And if the higher critical scholar were attentive, would he have noted the juxtaposition that the conversation is being had amongst his disciples as compared to those amongst the Jews? I mean, let's take this aspect. Let's consider the axiom that both of them understood, Jews and the disciples alike. It was considered that the anticipated Messiah from the scriptures was proclaimed to live forever. John 12, 34, the crowd then said to him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, Old Testament references, there are many, but I've wanted to draw these three particularly are shown, especially from Ezekiel 37, 25. It states, They will live on the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Keep that thought process. We're going to get to that towards the later of the sermon. And two, 2 Samuel, verse 7, notably by verse 16, upon the prophet Nathan's vision to David. 
He states, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. From this transition, we have David's very own words. In Psalms 110, verses 4 through 5, it reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. Again, keep this in note as when we get to the final portion of the sermon. All this being drawn, it's clear to understand why Jews and disciples alike expected the Messiah to live forever. So then by good and necessary deduction deduced from scripture, it's clear being that the similarity between the Jews and the apostles, that they were both human, it takes the Messiah to clarify what is spiritual. And again, like I stated before, the issue with the higher critical scholars is because, again, they're looking through their own humanist gaze. But from the aspect of the spirit and being able to teach and show, especially the individuals who are gifted to preach and to teach, he makes light to show there is no schisms in scripture. So therefore, it's shown in the meaning and idea behind the juxtaposition between the conversation with the Jews to the dialogue with the apostles. He's making it pretty evident and very telling on who his audience is and what the audience represent. Note here, we're going to continue with John 12 and we will now read verses 35-36. And here is the note he makes to the Jews. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so you may become sons of light. That's one notion. Now to the apostles, which is stated here in John 13, 33 to 35. Note the closeness. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, ah, the juxtaposition here. So now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And note by this final piece, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the master highlights the distinction to the crowd. The call is for repentance leading to becoming his disciples or better yet, being adopted as sons while he was bodily and physically dwelling with them. But meanwhile, to the disciples, he wants them to display obedience to his commands for it serves as a true demonstration to the world of their discipleship of him. See, it's all the forward proving that while he is not physically here, they believe, or rather yet, are going to understand he is not far because he is continually living, he is continually reigning, 
And quote unquote, they will see him again. John 14, 18 through 21. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Again, he even brings up the commandment to show the love of being his true disciple by obeying it. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be then loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. The Messiah is consistent. Very, very consistent. Now, furthermore, continuing here with chapter 16, he wants to express his love and he offers reassurance. Therefore, Jesus is reiterating he is not doing it in redundancy. His words do not, and I repeat, do not come empty. When he states, truly, truly, I say to you, it means attention, please. So therefore, when he speaks and every iota and every word was meant with purpose and it was exact, do not make assumptions. So therefore, when he speaks, especially now as he speaks of the spirit, he wants to show, especially being that embodiment, that he is all full of grace and full of truth, according to John 1.14. His assurance to them that the helper will arrive upon his departure is just to reiterate the show and the work of the plan that was planned before the foundation of the world took place. Ephesians makes that very clearly. So therefore, here in John 16, he reiterated the work of the Spirit and he's going to show in this way, unlike the other, the various ways of which the Spirit works. I'll bring to your attention. It was first iterated in John 14, 16 through 17. The Spirit will abide in you forever. It reads, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him nor know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Secondly, in John 14, continue to verse 26, the Spirit teaches us all things and brings us to remembrance of all things that is Christ. It reads, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, another point in John 15, verse 26, the Spirit will testify the truth always and forever that indeed the Christ and the Father are one in harmony and enables us, us also to bear witness to that truth. It reads, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Here now then, as we continue to verse number 7 in John 16, the first clause is indicating a declarative statement. 
Though there's a conjunction that precedes it, it's declarative nonetheless. But I tell you the truth. He does not lie. There is no lie with the master. And so therefore, by conveying this particular declarative statement, again, he's showing, he's conveying, especially how Paul indicates that will being a mystery in Ephesians. In chapter 1, now being revealed. He's showing that those who are to become God's chosen one, God's elect, they are God's inheritance. For the plan was he was to sacrifice his own son. And upon that sacrifice, to take on that imputed righteousness, they need to be a seal and it needs to be a promise. Here now, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It is now then within reason why the master continues to state then by the latter clause of verse number seven, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. Upon his departure, he then explains, if I do go, I will send him to you. It then shows the spirit's commencement upon the work that was done. It's explained and it was supposed to be done in the covenant of redemption. It was to show how the spirit was to be upon the hearts of his believers. And it's tangible. Not tangible where you go through the emotions. That's not where I'm coming from. Though I don't know where you are in the telecast and your thought process with the spirit and the gifts. I say that. But it's tangible because of a change of attitude. A change of want. A change of discussion. A change of who you believe or what you believe. And all this was spoken by the law and the prophets. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put in within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your heart and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor and to his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I, and I will remember their sin no more. Segwaying now to verses 8 through 10. Recall, in particular, those poignant statements defined by the master's own lips 
in John 15, 18 through John 16, verse 4, that the world would not regard them fondly. I mean, think about it. Such phrases. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And they were forewarned that they would be ostracized, outcasts from the synagogues. And a time would be where they will come to those who will perse persecute them, believing that they're doing God a service. It seems logical then, especially if the higher critical scholar wants to take this route, then yes, sorrow and distress will follow the forewarnings of the trials and persecutions because they came from the master's own lips. However, in him being truth and him showing the love, he is conveying that these forthcoming challenges to the disciples was not in vain. In fact, John 16 verse 1 God states, Jesus states to them, these things I spoke to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He also states and affirmed by John 15, 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So then it's a note here and very, very telling in that the spirit in which is coming to bring on and show the seal of this new covenant, it will convict the world. This is where he's coming from. The conviction that the world's about to come under. And note how the master states it. Convict the world concerning sin. Convict the world concerning righteousness. And convict the world concerning judgment. And concerning sin, the Spirit shows true and true those who do believe the Messiah and those who don't. I mean, by verse 9, it shows in the first particular clause, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Jews, do you not recall, they purported, remember that $10 word? They purported they were the sons of Abraham, John 10, 33. In John 10, 39, and that they were the true upholders of the law of Moses. John 8, 4 through 11. But the master denotes he performed works before them, and they were in blatant denial of his divine divinity. So therefore, what does the master state in contributing to their affirmation that they clearly hated God? I bring your attention to John 15, 22 to 24, it states, If I had not come and spoken to them, being the Jews, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. It continues, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Hmm. When concerning the work of the Spirit and convicting the world of righteousness and also in particular judgment, it's a show of the Spirit conveying, especially to the believers, upon the Master's ascension. From his earthly realm, meaning he bodily 
ascended up high. Upon that ascension, we have the commencement of the new covenant and the preceding work that is of the Spirit to work in our hearts to believe, to show to us that what God has spoken is true. It also bears witness to us that we ourselves are to show that fruit of repentance and obedience because the master is now reigning. And speaking of the fruits of repentance and obedience, these are the tangible fruits I spoke of not too long ago in regards to the glory to give to the Father in which the master speaks you much bear much fruit to prove that you're my disciples. And it's interesting because we're, I'm speaking this now and not one of us have ever claimed we saw the master. But the apostles who did showed various ways that the workings of repentance and obedience was still at work even in them. Do you remember with Philip? He stated to the master, Lord, show us the father and it is enough. In John 14, verse 8. But the, the master admonishes him. Haven't I been with you this long? And you, you ask to see the father? Me and the father are one. And the works, especially considering belief, doubting Thomas, upon his ascension, he heard the rumors and stories, quote unquote, that the master has resurrected bodily. And he said, until I put my hand in those holes, I will not believe. But what does the master say? John 20, verse 29, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. You see, in bringing the conviction that, this, that dwell within the spirit to us of righteousness and in particular judgment, there's many things that can be said of it. Another idea is also to show that compared to Philip, we are convicted to believe that the Father and the Christ is one. As the Master spoke and explained to Philip, as it continues in John 14, 10 through 11, the words I say to you, I do not speak of my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. To continue from the idea, John 15, 15 through 16, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slaves do not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all the things I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me because I chose you. I'm sorry, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you will go and bear fruit. Again. And that your fruit would remain so that you would ask of the Father in my name and he may give it to you. Now, concerning the aspect 
of judgment. In particular, because <laughs> with verses 10 through 11, and really in verse 9, they're all segueing these three parts in regards to the workings of the Spirit. And coming to verses 10 through 11, especially with the aspect of the judgment, he brings on a pretty interesting point. And I don't think a lot of people understand the gravity of that point. It reads, I don't go particularly to this particular clause, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Many, especially if you are a humanist, might be thinking, well, which magistrate is being judged by the Messiah? Now, I, I, I must say this. <laughs> if someone died the way King Herod died, <laughs> By having words come out of his ears and eyes. I think people will see who the master is judging, right? But nonetheless, nonetheless, the ruler speaking in this particular part is that particular fallen angel. And what's interesting is the father of lies, which the title he so righteous, rightly deserves, can no longer no longer deceive. You see, the disposition of time, God in his plan wanted to pull out a sect of people to himself. It's very clear. What he promised to Abraham was an understanding that I'm going to bring out a people who's going to love me. And upon the dispensation of time, many individuals have joined the grouping. Some have also left. But nonetheless, the Father's hand has always been with that group until a time came when they no longer loved him. That's the key point. And who's to blame? That's a question. Albeit, it is proper, especially given this aspect of where we're going to come to when it comes to the trial and the persecution of Christ when we get to the latter chapters. He makes this notion now because he's guaranteeing them to his disciples, especially the conversation is more intimate with them. Don't you worry about the ruler of this world. Do not worry about the individuals and the evils that can take place. I will continue to reign and reign and everything. Nothing is from my hand. And what makes us believe that? It's the spirit that was promised. That's why the emphasis was and I'll bring you back to your attention here concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. The Spirit convicts you of the belief. That was the impact. And upon concerning judgment, the Spirit convicts you that he is reigning. That's key. That is key. Upon his resurrection and ascension, 
the works that you hear and read in the scriptures is going to become a complete and honest and truthful testimony to your faith. <laughs> in fact, upon his reign, it's going to be a show because he is reigning continually now. But for us, and the apostles as well, but particularly to the church as a whole, the Spirit is testifying to us the work of his hand. And it works on both aspects. He protects, and I quote, show loving kindness and mercy to the thousands of them who obey his commandments. John 14, 15. Exodus 20, verse 4. But then he visit the iniquities of the fathers unto the children of the third and fourth generation, and I quote, of those who hated me without a cause. John 15, 25, Exodus 20, again, verse 4. So, with the workings of the Spirit, he also shows, and I love this phrase, the harmony, that this is not something new. Because remember, they had the axiom, he was to live forever. So remember, I brought to you those verses. Now, let's bring it all back in full circle. Let's show the harmony again from the old, especially in particular of his reign. David speaks. In the beginning of Psalms 110, verse 1 to 2, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch out your, stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. As Psalm 110 continues by verse 6 and 7, he shows his rulings, especially to those who hated him without a cause. He will shudder, shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpse. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. <laughs> it's amazing because then the Messiah, especially if you recall in the scriptures, being from a young age, was seen to be an individual full of wisdom. So then the Messiah understand these exact words, albeit his spirit was reigning in David, but nonetheless, he even reiterates it. Now, various iterations, you will note. If you're taking notes, you'll find this iteration in Matthew 22, especially verses 41 to 45, in Mark 12 by verses 35 to 37, and in Luke 20, 41 through 43. And I'm going to put a little bit more time into this, and I did save it for the, uh, save time for this, but Matthew's narrative in particular makes a distinct highlight. So we're going to have another juxtaposition. And we're noting just positions between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, who said there was no resurrection, by the early portions of the chapter, and particularly in Matthew 22, inquired about it. But the Master, again, like I said, 
of all wisdom embodied in him, silenced them by verses 29 to 34, and they kept their mouth shut, so to speak. So when the Pharisees caught wind of this, Pharisees, the individuals, but though sporadically, believed that there was a resurrection, then questioned him about the law of Moses. And when the master, again, embodiment of all wisdom, answers correctly, <laughs> note here, and I want to read their answer, in particular by Mark 12, Note here what they state by verse 32. Right, teacher, you have stated, you have truly stated that he is one. There is no one else besides him to love him with all your heart, with all your, with all your understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Oh, the conjury. They got it right. Interesting. To continue, though, they said, you are not far from the kingdom. Oh. Is that right? <laughs> so then, supposedly, I have it right. The master hearing this. Now, there's various iterations, but nonetheless, it's consistent. The master hearing this. He's going to take their additional questions upon the kingdom. In particular, by Matthew 22, the Pharisees respond further. They gather together and they ask the master a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Does that sound familiar? And, <laughs> and John, did we not hear this? He's supposed to live forever. But then you said the son of man should be lifted up. So who's the son of man? Well, in here, in Matthew 22, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, I'm sorry, I apologize. Jesus asked them the question. But nonetheless, their answer, and this is what gets me, and I, I, I kind of giggled when I saw this, but this is what gets me. They answer to him, the son of David. So, in particular, especially because the master is posing them the question, especially about the Christ, and especially in particular about the fact that you stated to me, I'm not far from the kingdom, quote unquote. He then said to them, how does David in the spirit calling him Lord says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies beneath your feet. Have David, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? That's where the quandary was. The mistake in not understanding the aspect of the resurrection, the law of God, and his reign. That's where they made the mistake in their statement. You are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, again, this is all coming back to our uh, point in concerning judgment. The comprehension and the involvement of the master in the resurrection and the establishment of his eternal reign was limited to them because they saw it just like the higher critical scholar sees it through their human gaze. He even pointed blatantly, look at the quandary in your own philosophy. And so, with all that being said, it's discernible, it is very discernible that the Messiah is speaking that you must 
have peace because I'm telling you the truth. And upon this truth, the understanding is I will still be with you, though I'm not physically with you. And because of the plan that was planned before the foundation of the world, it is important that I go because upon my ascension, the commencement of my reign begins, it shows forth. If that was the message to the apostles, what is the message to us? So I'm going to take the Paulinian gospel and I'm going to give it to you word by word. There is no interjection here. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse number 20. I do not need to interject. It will bring all this together. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is exempted who put all things in subjection under him. For when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under the Son. That God may be all in all. That's the conclusion. That's, that's, that is the conclusion. And it's amazing because we're getting it piecemealed as we're looking through the gospel. But this is the plan. This is why for us who have never seen him, and we believe by the workings and the convictions of the Spirit, for us to never see him, we do not have sorrow because we believe that. The people who do have sorrow or the people who are very scared are those who the Spirit has not enlightened. Their future is very brim and very dark. This is why I wanted to show the emphasis he made in discussion between the Jews and to his disciples. The use of adverbs and key words and tones, maybe depending on how you read it, but the use of it was shown to the individuals who were being called to repentance and to now those who have been called and are in the faith to continue in obedience. There's a different aspect to it. But all in all, the master is consistent, being full of grace and full of truth to give his people, as John 14 showed, peace.
when Jason returns, he's going to give the next aspect, especially with verses 12 to 15, and he may even come in and cross over with verses 5 through 11, but that's okay, because again, this is a packet of peace that is to show, and especially give us, it gave to the disciples, especially upon the Master's resurrection and ascension, what he was stating and understanding, and we will get to that aspect by the later portion of uh, John 16, at the uh, ending of the chapter, but nonetheless, this last piece here with the talking of the Holy Spirit is to accumulate everything that he was speaking of the prior two chapters because he was still sticking upon that premise. I'm here to give you peace. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And so it's a love for me to actually forewarn you. But I'm here to give you peace. And upon this peace, you will also show your true discipleship of me by not only come doing my commands, but then teaching them to the rest of the church so that they know what true obedience and discipleship actually means. Let us go to the Lord our God now in prayer. <laughs>